This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 26, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Fernando Rosario Ortiz talks about the best way to keep drinking water clean. And Catherine Matasik is here with stories from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have Catherine Matisik. She's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on fast-rising seas. This is actually a really big story. Four papers came out this week on the link between climate and sea level, using everything from tiny tidal critters to historical records to kilometer-long cores. Uh, Let's start with the critters we're going to talk about, also known as forams. How can they tell us about past sea levels and their links with climate? Forams are tiny amoeba-like creatures that make hard shells out of calcium carbonate and live at the bottom of the sea. Most of them prefer salt water, but some like fresh water, and some go for a combination of both. And because of their shells, they fossilize really easily. So researchers going back through the fossil record can tell from their shells what species they were and what kind of water they preferred. If they look at enough of them, they can get a pretty good idea of where past oceans were located and how high those waters got. In this study that we're talking about today, they looked across many, many sites. What were they able to learn from this new research? They ended up looking at 24 sites around the globe. They looked at both the critters that we talked about, forams, and also the oldest written records they could find of tides at each of the locations. Looking at all of this the researchers were able to track sea level rise for the past 3,000 years. That's one of the most complete records to date. What they found was pretty impressive. They were able to link significant changes in sea levels to small changes in global temperature. So during the cold spell that happened, I'm sure you remember this, (laughs) back around 1,000 to 1,400, um, a drop in global temperature of just 0.2 degrees Celsius may have caused the world seas to drop by 8 centimeters. By contrast, they've risen about 14 centimeters in the 20th century. At least half of that increase is due to human-induced climate change, say the researchers, 
who also say that sea levels are very likely to rise another quarter of a meter to one and a half meters during this century. So we're talking meters here, not centimeters. Well, that's right. That's right. There's a, an important distinction there. Just, you know, take out a ruler and you can see <laughs> what a big difference there is. And the second study that is in this set, they used this incredibly long core or plug that they dug out of the Antarctic seabed. It was over a kilometer long. What kind of information do the layers in that long log have to offer? Okay, so we were talking centimeters and meters. You <laughs> just said kilometers, Right, Sarah. right. The plug was 1.1 kilometers long. That's about two and a half laps around your average high school track. As you can imagine, the layers of ice and rock go back a really, really long time, between 14 million and 20 million years ago. At that time, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were only a little bit higher than they are today. The plug tells a tale of massive shifts in the ice sheets that were actually in sync with changes in this level of carbon dioxide. When carbon dioxide was at its lowest, the ice sheets extended so far into the ocean that they dug into the sea floor. At other times, the ice sheets retreated far enough onto the land that pollen from shore plants showed up in the sediment. And that happened at times when carbon dioxide was about 100 parts per million higher than it is today, suggesting that ice sheets like Antarctica's are vulnerable to relatively small changes in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. All right, let's pull this all together. We're talking about sea level, we're talking about carbon dioxide, and we're talking about ice sheets. All this data seems to converge or support each other, and they're all saying seas are rising, climate is changing. Is there any chance they're wrong? Well, I mean, climate change is obviously happening, Sarah. It's just a matter of the degree to which it's happening and what the numbers are. All four of these papers showed some pretty amazing agreement on those numbers. The one way that they could be slightly off is if all the researchers are sharing a couple of flawed assumptions. Next up, we have a story on plants and people that trick bugs. Orchids are often in disguise. These flowers can pretend to be food or rivals or even mates in order to attract pollinators like flies and wasps. And these disguises aren't limited to the visual. Some orchids also put out unusual odors like human body odor. What about the orchids in this study, Catherine? What do they look like and what do they smell like? Given the orchid's name, they're called Dracula orchids, you might think they look or smell like blood, <laughs> but they don't. Instead, they look and smell like mushrooms. To attract a certain fungus-loving fly, the orchids have a single petal that looks similar to their favorite mushrooms. It also has an incredibly similar smell. And so the researchers wanted to know what exactly was attracting the orchids' pollinators, uh, were they looking at the orchid, its appearance? Were they looking at its single petal? Or were they smelling their target? And they went to some unusual lengths to figure this out. What did they do? It's really hard, actually, for researchers to tease apart what attracts pollinators. There's smell, there's color, there's surface texture, and there's shape. And these are all so different in wildflowers that it's really hard to figure out which one a pollinator is going for. So the researchers decided they would make fake flowers. They did it using an advanced 3D printing technique that allowed them to make these beautiful mimics or fakes out of silicon. 
They did it using advanced 3D printing techniques that allowed them to make really nice copies of these flowers out of silicon. Once they had the silicon flowers, they could paint them in whatever color they wanted. They could add scents to them. They could do all sorts of fun things. I think they even, in one of the experiments, took petals from the real flower and attached them to parts of the fake flower, creating Frankenstein flowers. (laughs) My favorite part of this was that I guess in past research, people who were looking to make fake flowers used something really simple, like they went and got a Q-tip and put some scent on it. This is just a whole nother level. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, I think one of the stories that I was reading, the researchers said that they just went to the dollar store to assemble their carton of goodies. But with this one, you know, they were actually really striving to create something that was going to be so airtight that they'd be able to tell what exactly these flies were looking at or smelling when they went for the flowers. And once they had these flower molds and they were able to make all these different flower, fake flowers, even frankenflowers, how did they test their attraction value? They actually did a couple of things, Sarah. They painted them different colors. They also added different scents to the flowers. And it turns out that the orchids need both the right look and the right smell to pull off their swindle. The artificial flowers, even those that looked perfect, attracted fewer flies than the real flowers. Only when the researchers applied scents from the natural orchids were just as many flies buzzing around the fake ones. Still, the fakes aren't perfect, the researchers say. Flies landed less often on the printed blossoms than on real flowers. So basically, they'd fly up close, thinking that this was what they were looking for, and then they'd get, you know, get in real close, but veer away at the last second. The center petal of the orchid, which looks very much like the mushroom, is the key to its disguise. A real flower with a fake center petal attracted flies no better than an orchid made entirely of silicon. This petal is also where the orchid's mushroom smell comes from. One thing we forgot to mention when we were talking about this article is that the researchers didn't just make these beautiful flowers all on their own. They recruited artists to help them kind of get the look and feel of these flowers. Isn't that kind of unusual? Well, scientists need to use all the tools they have at their disposal. And Art is one of them. Um, As a matter of fact, I think they worked so closely with this artist to create these flowers that they actually put her as an author on the paper. Lastly, we have a story on gender bias on the Internet. In the U.S. and many other places, there is a so-called wage gap where women working the same jobs as men earn less for the same work. In the U.S., women are paid 79 cents on the dollar for the same work done by a man. This latest study asks, does this wage gap persist even if the people paying are doing so through eBay, where they're not evaluating someone's work, they're just paying for a product? Let's start with the data here, Catherine. What numbers did eBay share with the researchers? It wasn't easy to get this data, apparently, because for a long time, eBay has been keeping this data very close to its chest, I guess. And what's interesting is when the researchers were finally able to get a hold of this, they got information on millions of sales. And in addition to that, they were able to find out, you know, what the selling price was, the final selling price for both new products and used products. And in some cases, they also knew about the identity of the sellers, whether they were male or female. 
Now, do buyers actually know the identity of sellers when they're making bids or making purchases? There's no way to know with 100 percent certainty, but there are a couple of ways buyers can actually intuit what the sex of the seller might be. And those include little clues like, what is the username? It could also include clues like, uh, you know, what other items are they selling? So the average person, not you, Sarah, because I think you're very <laughs> open-minded, you know, you're, you're very liberated. I think the average person would go to the site and say, oh, you're selling electronics. You must be a man. Or, oh, you're selling women's clothing or shoes. Maybe you're a woman. And so what the researchers wanted to do was verify that these biases were already in place. And in a random sample of 100 sellers, they asked 400 people totally unrelated, what do you think? Are they men or are they women? And the subjects were able to guess correctly 56% of the time. So, you know, that goes to show that even though there may not be a clear answer, is the seller a man or a woman? There are ways that people guess. And when men and women are selling the same product, so the clue of, you know, having uh, women's clothing or some more masculine identified objects, you know, they're selling the exact same thing. Was there a difference in how much they got paid for their work or for their product? Well, so with used products, Sarah, women on average made 97 cents for every dollar that male sellers made. For new products, they made about 80 cents. And when you say new and used products, you're talking about the exact same thing, right? Right. So, for example, iPods, that's a very popular item on eBay, both new and used. And so the researchers were able to look at these products, standardize them, and say, you know, the only thing that is changing here is the gender and the identity of the seller. What do the researchers chalk this up to? I mean, not everyone says I'm a man or I'm a woman when they're selling on eBay. What do they think is causing this difference in payouts for the same products? So at first, the researchers thought maybe it has something to do with the description. Maybe men have a tendency to describe things in more positive terms than females. This is with the new products, by the way. So they performed a computer analysis on the titles and subtitles of the advertisements, scoring them for words that reflected positive or negative sentiment. And in the end, they found that there was barely a discernible difference. So it wasn't the words in the description that actually determined whether or not people were paying more or less money. So that was what they were looking at with new products. With the used products, there was a much smaller gap. Remember, I said women are making like 97 cents on the dollar to men. And what the researchers are guessing, I don't know that they actually have anything to back this up, is that people inherently trust women to give them more accurate descriptions of used products. What what are we supposed to take away from this? I mean, basically, this big gap in the new products payments is not explained by the analysis that the researchers did. I mean, am I just supposed to buy from women on eBay because I'm going to get a better price? If you can figure out who they are, that's one thing that you could do to continue this <laughs> horrible imbalance that is taking place. I mean, I think that the difficulty here is we're talking about inherent biases and not overt ones. But, you know, I, I just I think that it's one of these things that you look at the way women and men typically communicate in this society 
And you see a lot of the disparities that go along with that. Again, not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level. And you realize we have a long way to go. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on ancient armadillos who grew to be as big as VW bugs. And a story on the molecular link between sleep and mood. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on a new NIH review of primate research and another story on how fungal toxins may be poisoning children in the developing world. Be sure to check out all these stories and more online. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an online news editor for our daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. If you're lucky, you never have to think too deeply about how safe your tap water is, though recent events in Michigan may have turned your thoughts that way. The extreme lead contamination in Flint is a reminder that safe drinking water, and plenty of it, is a modern miracle. But how safe and how modern is water infrastructure these days? I spoke with Fernando Rosario Ortiz about different approaches to keeping water safe. The water we're polishing relates to the difference in philosophy between the drinking water production between the United States and the United Kingdom compared to some of the countries in Europe, for example, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Germany. And that really has to do with whether we need a disinfectant or not in a distribution system and under what conditions can we have that water being sent to customers' homes without that disinfectant being present. What are some of the different approaches out there to make sure that water is safe to drink from the tap? I mean, you mentioned disinfectant. What other ways are there? All water treatment processes are essentially designed with the goal of producing safe water. You want to make sure that what you send to consumers is water that is safe, that is not going to make anyone sick. However, when you look at different countries, you start to see differences in how this is done. As an example, in the United States, you can have a large water system where water is taken from a river, reservoir, or even a lake, and then that water gets treated. The way the water gets treated is by having different processes such as coagulation, flocculation, sedimentation, and also disinfection to be able to produce water that is safe. Then that water gets sent to customers' homes through the distribution system, but in the United States, we require to have a disinfectant present there as the water is traveling to the consumer's tap. And that disinfectant could be chlorine, for example, chloramines or chlorine dioxide. The problem is that disinfectant can also react with the organic carbon present in the water, something that we call organic carbon, organic matter. Now, that organic matter is essentially a soup of organic compounds, and you have reactions between the disinfectant and the organic matter that produce what we call disinfection byproducts. Now, those disinfection byproducts are considered to be toxic, therefore regulated by the EPA. Even though we have regulations for trihalomethase and halocytic acids, there are hundreds of compounds that are formed for which we know very little about. So that's essentially what we do in the United States. Now, when we take a look at um, some of the systems in Europe, we start to see the differences. As an example, in the city of Zurich, the city of Zurich takes part of the water from Lake Zurich, which is essentially a fairly decent um, source water. Then the water goes through a combination of oxidation by ozone that is also acting as a disinfectant step, and also biological filtration. And then at the end, the water is sent to the consumer's tap in the distribution system without a disinfectant residual. In both cases, water is safe, 
that's one of the main differences that we observe in these cases. And the question comes up as to whether we actually need to have the disinfection or not. And what are some of the other countries doing to make sure that the water is safe? So one of the drawbacks to adding the disinfectant is that it can degrade chemicals in the pipes and cause these byproducts that may be bad for us. But it also, you can taste it, right? Yes, you can taste it. And that's one of the, when you look at the European experience, that's one of the reasons why they decide not to have the chlorine. They don't want to have issues with disinfection byproducts, but also consumers really don't like the taste of chlorine in their water. Even though some of those see that taste of chlorine as something kind of a proof that the water is safe, mm. it's actually not very pleasant to some people. So it's something that people, some utilities in Europe try to avoid to make sure that the consumers don't have to deal with that. In your, in your paper, you compare the U.S., the U.K., and the Netherlands. How do they handle their water differently? And can we tell anything about how safe these practices are when we make these comparisons? Well, the main difference between the U.S. and the U.K. and the Netherlands, and for that matter also Switzerland and Germany, is essentially the philosophy of distributing the water without a disinfectant. In the Netherlands, this has been the case for quite a while, as they have gone through significant efforts towards making sure their systems is as safe as possible, including a significant investment in infrastructure. Their pipes are essentially relatively new, and the leakage rate, which is essentially how much water gets lost in the distribution, which is also a measure of integrity, it's fairly low. However, as we stress in the article, it is only advisable to um, distribute water without a disinfectant when you actually have multiple barriers. In this case, you have significant investment in source water protection, a fairly robust drinking water system, and also a good investment in maintenance of the distribution system. In the U.S. and the U.K., you still have the disinfectant, and it's there to add a protective barrier. However, by adding this barrier, you're also exposing consumers to DVPs and also um, the taste of chlorine. When you compare that to some European countries, they have actually shown that you can actually produce safe water without having that need for disinfection in a distribution system. And when you say safe water in this instance, it's more about, you know, any microbial contaminants, any diseases that are getting in the water and making people sick. Right. So one of the things that we looked in this article was, is there any evidence that having that disinfectant in distribution system results in higher incidence of waterborne outbreaks? And when you look at the data, there's actually no clear evidence to suggest that distributing the water without its infection will result in a higher incidence of outbreaks. Again, when you look at these countries that are doing so, that are doing the distribution of water without its infection, they're actually having a lot of effort in, in the other aspects, source water and really good treatment, so that when the water gets sent to the consumers, you actually don't have any issues. Let's talk about the differences in infrastructure. You know, is the source of water the same, say, in the U.S. and in the U.K. when compared to these other countries? And is the infrastructure getting it to our houses good enough for us to be able to leave off disinfection? To answer your question, it will not be recommended that a switch towards not having a disinfectant is made without taking care of infrastructure. Even though we may not think very much of the buried pipes that bring water to our homes, the water can spend a significant amount of time there, and you think about it, a lot of things could go wrong. In the United States, there's been several estimates regarding the need to upgrade the infrastructure related to water production and delivery, and we really have to focus on spending money on upgrading that before we consider switching to um, not having an disinfectant residual as part of our long-term strategy. Yeah, some of the numbers that you shared in your article were pretty uh, extreme, although I think the U.K. has even more old pipes than the U.S. Yeah, that seems to be the case. When we look at um, the average age of pipe, it's a very difficult 
thing to look at, but when we look at some of the data that is available, we do show that um, some of the older cities, older systems have obviously much older pipes. Yeah, some of the average ages are, are pushing 80 years old. Right. In the UK, the average age is 75 to 80 years. You, you have that in systems that are much older. So in that case, you know, you have to go into replacing the infrastructure to be able to make sure that you don't have any issues, right? Because one of the things that happens with all pipes is that they can break. You can have a, a small um, breaking point where if the pressure gradient exists, you can actually have intrusion events where you can bring contamination from the outside to the inside. And that's one of the reasons why we have the residual there to make sure that we protect the water. However, if we have an infrastructure that is in good shape, we should be able to deliver the water without having to have a significant concern regarding contamination events in the distribution system. How does cost factor into all this? Do we need to spend money on infrastructure in order to change the way we clean our water? It could be a consideration. You know, we can put up a situation where, you know, we decide that we don't want to have chlorine anymore in our distribution system and kind of follow the European approach. But in that case, we have to make sure that we have the other barriers in place, and that includes upgrading our distribution system and making sure that once the water gets into the distribution system that there are no significant issues that are going to degrade the water. Another important point is, you know, regarding the cost of water. And when we look at the cost of water between the U.S. and some European countries, some of the countries do pay more for potable water. So that's also a consideration for us, the overall pricing of the water, and realizing that we might be having it too good, that we may have to spend a little bit more on water to make sure that we're improving our infrastructure and doing a better job at protecting public health. As our water system ages, we might have to use more and more chlorine, or we might have to continue to add this protective chlorine to the water, and our pipes are more and more vulnerable to that in the end. Right, and, and as the situation in Flint, Michigan has shown, there's also issues that could happen regarding all infrastructure. And even though the situation in Flint is kind of an, out of the ordinary, it's a concern that we have regarding all infrastructure and issues that we have to take care of and deal with to be able to protect public health. Fernando Rosario Ortiz is an assistant professor in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder. He and his colleagues write about keeping water clean and tasty in this week's science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.